three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Now, today's podcast features two Palenque Norte talks that Bruce Damer gave at the 2022 Burning Man Festival. I was uh, actually tempted to cut the first eight minutes of this talk. Well, <laughs> because it's basically Bruce and Eric thanking me for the salon and for starting the Palenque Norte lecture series. As they say in the movies, uh, move along, there's nothing to see here. (laughs) So please feel free to fast forward about eight minutes to the beginning of Bruce's talk. However, uh, I do thank them both from the bottom of my heart for their overly kind words. They are very deeply appreciated. Now this talk was followed by an hour-long Q&A session that I'll podcast uh, after I post a few of the other Planky Norte talks from 2022. Although I haven't previewed them yet, uh, there are recordings waiting for me from talks by Cory Doctorow, John Gilmore, Android Jones, and Rick Doblin, among others. But for now, let's join Eric and Bruce in the big tent at Camp Soft Landing during the 2022 Burning Man Festival. We catch the intro. There we go. Okay, Henry. Hello. Hello. Okay, hey guys. The dust storm is subsiding, so we can begin now. <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see. How's everyone today? Woo! All right. A round of applause for our next speaker, Dr. Bruce Damer. We're going to talk about psychedelic opinions and psychedelic of love. Um, and we also have with us, you want to introduce yourself and Yeah. Eric Stefani. Eric Stefani, everyone. Also, fun fact that the first demo has been to Burning Man since 1999, one of the original OG of Burning Man. <laughs> the OG. <laughs> Alright, let you guys take the stage. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm uh, pleased to have you here. My name is Eric, and this is Bruce Damer, and I just wanted to take a moment. Uh, to wish a very special happy birthday to Lorenzo Haggerty, who first, is everybody familiar with the Psychedelic Salon? Good, we we work as a team, I moderate uh, some of those groups for uh, Lorenzo, but it's, uh, for those of you not familiar, there's several hundred hours of lecture series, uh, including Palenque Norte and Palenque, Mexico, where this all began in uh, the Yucatan jungle. So, just wanted to take a moment and wish Lorenzo a happy birthday. We love you, Lorenzo. The gift you've given this community of all this knowledge and information is uh, abundant and, and is, is really a gift. And uh, while I'm up here, uh, also Ken Symington and uh, Mateo and Jacques, we love you all. Yeah, these are the people that made the platform that you are now sitting on, not only Palenque Norte as a place that was the Palenque conference that was held between 1988 and 1991 by a nefarious, notorious swimming pool in Palenque, Mexico, where as Terrence McKenna would say, it was at the height of mushroom season, but there was nothing we could do about that. 
So people would wander into the jungle in the first week and, and bring back fresh mushrooms, and the conference would go downhill from there. So uh, that was Palenque. And so in 2002, we held a speaker series uh, way across the fly in a place called Podville, and they were the prototypes for those pods that you see, the commercial ones. The, the first try at that, and we did the first speaker series ever at Burning Man in 2002. And it worked so well. We had Alex and Allison Gray. We had, uh, you know, Robert and Martina Venonosa. We had myself, the whole the whole gang. We would have had Terrence, but he passed away two years prior. And so we decided to restart Palenque Norte, which was the watering hole for the psychedelic movement in at Burning Man and called Palenque Norte. Bring it north, and it's generated, as, as Eric mentioned, hundreds of hours of incredible content, new voices to add to the 700 podcasts on the Psychedelic Salon, um, including all the digitized talks of Timothy Leary, which came through my resources, and uh, Terrence McKenna got him off cassette and got him onto digital for you guys to use and to have Terrence to this day. So, but Lorenzo was the kingpin. And just a little story, I mean, I'm eating all my time here, but the kingpin was, this is a guy, Lorenzo Haggerty, comes from Columbus, Ohio. Anybody from Columbus, Ohio? It's a pretty conservative place in the 1950s, right? Even until recently. So he comes out of Columbus, Ohio. He joins the Navy. He goes to Vietnam. He has a regular military kind of a life. He goes and gets his law degree at University of Houston, He's, he's like a straight-up guy, just a plain old straight-up guy. He's in the Republican Party. He's a fundraiser for the Republican Party. He's Roman Catholic. He's a devout Catholic or practicing to some degree. And then in 1985, and Rick will tell you about this, because Rick, uh, Rick Doblin, the, the nefarious location in downtown Dallas called the Stark Club. And the Stark Club was designed by Leo Stark, a very famous French designer, and it could house about 2,500 people in massive parties. This was the place to be in Dallas in the 80s. And guess who was there at the door to greet you? Larry Hagman in his 10-gallon hat, the star of Dallas. Of course. What were they doing? They were handing out MDMA. To who? The socialites and billionaires and conservatives of Dallas, Texas, and every, all their friends who were coming to discover love uh, at the Star Club, to come into union... And so there's a reason why some of the phase three clinical trials are funded by Republicans on the far right, because that was their drug, goddammit, and it was taken away from them. They thought that that was going to change the world, that MDMA was going to solve the problems. And so Bush family and other family members remember that. They remember those experiences. They remember the disappointment when it was taken from them, and they've helped fund the studies. So Lorenzo comes into the Stark Club on one Saturday night, all those things that I just mentioned, and he walks out, uh, still Irish. <laughs> and he still had his law, uh, his uh, practices license law, but he was no longer in those other things. And neither was anybody else that walked out. They were not strictly Republican anymore. They were not strictly conservative anymore. They were different. And it was a Dallas, it was a Texas thing. So... They formed a multi-level marketing organization to manufacture and distribute DNA and uh, MDMA downlink in the way a Texas company would do. 
And so that's how MDMA was distributed across the United States, was multi-level marketing, Reagan style. So think about that. It was a psychedelic explosion in the mid-80s, in the middle of the war on drugs. It called MDMA, and it powered, it was a young guy named Rick Doblin, part of the scene, who ended up being in the courthouse in Chicago when the judge just put his gavel down and it was, you know, it was scheduled. And that's where Rick Doblin said, holy shit and got going, and got maps going. And so it's all beautifully intertwined, isn't it? Then Rick gets conservative money to help with the freaking $50 million they need to get this through the FDA. It's brilliance, it's, it's absolute brilliance, the history of it. And so, and why we love the genius of Lorenzo Haggerty is that he and he alone dredged up all these old talks. They, we had cassette tapes from Peter Gorman of what was it? It was, uh, we had it of uh, Laura Huxley. We had cassette tapes, uh, not only of all of Terrence and, and everybody else like that, but we had uh, Diana Slattery's. We had uh, even some of the real people that you could barely hear their voices. People from the 1940s were going to the jungle to look for the Kuhe. Uh, and we managed to re resurrect all that. And Lorenzo put it out in the psychedelic salon and it lifted an entire generation. It was like a radio beacon. Uh, and there are attempts now to sort of start it up in a new form, after all. He's, he's done like 700 of these. So anyway, shout out to Lorenzo. And that's a long shout out, but I thought you should know the history of why this platform is here and why are you sitting here. Eric, any final words? Uh, I would just encourage you all, that if you haven't checked it out, uh, just go in and look at episodes and search for you, whoever, whatever's most meaningful to you at the time, or just look at the index, you'll be amazed. And Lorenzo, once again, this is your friend, Eric. I really appreciate this gift to your community. You, uh, you know what you did. We love you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, he, he, he wanted to come for his 80th birthday, but uh, he, he, he was not here. We came to him. Everybody want to wish Lorenzo a happy birthday? We're recording. Thank you, Eric. So y'all ready for something really different? Yeah. You've heard uh, almost two hours of psychedelic psychotherapy, and it's always fresh and new for me. I never get tired of it, but what I'm going to present for you today is something completely different. How many Monty Python fans out there? <laughs> something completely different, right? It's completely different. A shot out of the blue, and it's out of the blue of this book. This is my new Bible. It's actually my old Bible. It's called The Psychedelic Reader. And for those of you who don't know, this is like, it's like an iPad with static, uh, power-free <laughs> elements made out of boards. And, and you, can't you, you can't swipe it. You, you can't, but you can do this. Look at this. You can swipe it. You really, really can. It, it smells good. Like this one is from 1964, so it, it's, it smells as old as me. And... Uh, Anyway, this, this is the Psychedelic Reader, published by uh, Harvard University Books. And this is the very first book of academic and scholarly and philosophical papers about psychedelics. It was published with the guest articles out of the Psychedelic Review, which was the first full journal, started by Timothy Leary and, and his gang at Harvard, the Psychedelic Review Journal, in 1962. 
And I want to read from this beginning of this Bible because this this is something that we've forgotten. So the, the very first uh, article in the very first book of academic papers on um, philosophical papers on psychedelics is called Can This Drug Enlarge Man's Mind? Now, it could be women's minds too, but this is 1964. Uh, so just take that as, as anyone's mind. And it's by Gerald Hurd, who is a long wizened beard philosopher of, of tremendous intellect. Tremendous guy. He helped start Esalen. He kind of put the roadmap together for Esalen for Dick Price and Mike Murphy in those years. But he, he was just tremendous. And these guys had taken psychedelics in the 50s, in, into the early 60s. You know about the doors of perception? With all, all the sucks he had, he took mescaline. And that, that opened the eyes of so many people. Because Aldous Huxley was not a woo-woo person. There were no hippies in these days. There were no hippies. This is America wearing fedoras. Right? This is before, well, before Kennedy's assassination. All the kind of chaos, the descent into chaos after Kennedy's assassination, which it was. Uh, so the 60s was buttoned down in this period. So the people were are fairly buttoned down. And yet, they're... They're very provocative, because why? They took these medicines, these elixirs, and they got blown open to a new world. Button-down people, just like Republicans in Dallas, Texas. It had worked any, in any operating system. So he asked, can this drug enlarge man's mind? Narcotics numb it. Alcohol unsettles it. Now a new chemical called LSD has an emerged with the phenomenal powers of intensifying and changing it, the mind, whether for good or for ill is the subject of hot debate. Nobody knew. But the, the original conception of LSD was literally, uh, they weren't talking about healing. They weren't talking about trauma. They were talking about problem solving for the human future, for civilization. That's what they were talking about. I'll give you a couple more examples. To have a truly original thought, this is also from Hurd's article, the mind must throw off its critical guard, its filtering sensor. It must put itself into a state of depersonalization. Can LSD provide any assistance to the creative process? Even when given under the best of conditions, it may do mo no more than give an experience. The subject must himself work with this enlarged frame of reference, this creative schema. If not, he or she will experience, the experience re remain a beautiful anomaly, a gradually fading wonder. And this is the final little punchy uh, prediction about, you, uh, about LSD. It is the unique quality of attention which LSD can bestow that will or will not be of benefit. Intensity of intention is what talented people must obtain or command if they are to exercise their talent. Makes sense, right? Absolute attention, as we know from example, Isaac Newton and Johann Sebastian Bach's descriptions of the state of mind in which they worked, is the most evident mark of genius functioning. In my uh, barn, where Catherine and I live, I inherited, by being an agent for the trust of the family of Timothy Leary, all of his extant materials, so his library, the news archive, his record collection signed by Beatles and psychedelic furs and things like this, 
Uh, and in there, in the 20,000 or so news clippings, there's an article, also from 1963, which said, was titled, you know, in the Boston Herald, NASA to use LSD to train lunar astronauts. Train lunar astronauts. So can you imagine if uh, America had gone that way, right? So LSD to train, so Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin have tripped their balls out, you know, before the flight, during their training, they're different humans. You don't may not know this, but Neil and Buzz did not like each other. They really didn't. And they didn't like each other for the rest of their lives. They were stuck together on the surface of the moon, and they were not bros. They were not bros. They were different. Neil thought Buzz was nuts. Nutso. Just out there, way out of control. Buzz was a genius. He could do orbital calculations in his head. But, you know, the commander, of course, uh, the pilot that got them to the surface was Neil Armstrong, because he was absolutely dialed in. He was the test pilot's test pilot. You know, don't talk to me. Look at the controls. You know, just let's get this thing down. And he did. But can you imagine if those two humans with the superpowers of releasing whatever it is they could release and become better at what they do, better as engineers, better as flight people, spacecraft operators, whatever... And even connecting with some kind of spiritual meaning for what they were about to do, which is to go to the moon and be an exemplar, avatars for humanity, to stand on another world and look at ours. But they didn't have anything to process that. They didn't have any tools or mechanics to digest the profundity of stepping out on another world and looking at ours. Right? They didn't. They, they had their checklist. They were going through the checklist. To They only had, like, I don't know, 16 hours or something, they were right there, out of there on their first mission. So I predict that if they had had access to these spiritual tools, access to the healing, access to the in, usually imparting mind-opening power of these tools, plus the therapies, they would have gotten along, they would have been bros. The mission would have not been so like, uh, they were almost out of fuel when they touched down. It was, it was, it was harrowing. Buzz told me the whole story of, of the land, at least from his perspective. What would have happened, though, should have, I think, had the impact on humanity is instead of Neil, like, he's, he's stepping down and he's going to jump, right? He's realized, oh, it's a really big leap, you know, he jumps on the surface of the moon, and you can see this, you know, you see this in uh, For All Mankind in the new miniseries, and they're late, and they almost crash, and he says an awkward thing, like, uh, for one, one small step for man, not even a man, but uh, one giant leap for hum humankind. Okay, that sounds good. You know, it, it just came out of Neil's mouth. There's nothing written beforehand. It just came out. But it's become an epic thing. I predict that if they had been doing LSD, he would have really focused on the full experience of getting on the moon, studying the dust. He would have said to Buzz to come down. Buzz is coming down. They're standing together. They're just, they're just like, wow, look at this. Let's just absorb this. Let's meditate. Now they're meditating, and now all of humanity is meditating because the cameras are on them. These two bros are meditating. And then the earth starts to rise. And Buzz looks over because he's the way out type personality and looks up, swings the camera, and says, Far out! And the whole world would have gone far out. You know, a different kind of experience, right? It could have changed the history in that way. Instead, here we are in 2022 just rolling these tools and this, this magic back into our civilization. So I just wanted to open with that.
So roll the clock forward from 1962, 63 to 1965. There's a guy named Willis Harmon, another psychologist. Uh, he's actually an engineer by training. He goes to San Francisco State College, which became SFSU, and he sets up the first psychedelic research group, really the first formal group that got funding. He had about a seven, eight months runtime before the government was, hammer was going to come down. They didn't know what was going on, but the governors of California and Nevada put, smashed the hammer down on LSD in the late 1965. It was, it was done. And so any serious researcher couldn't touch this stuff. They sent letters out to the groups. So here they, here they are. What does he do? He collects 25 scientists, engineers, mathematicians, an architect, come into a study. Let's do a pilot. Let's find out if, if we do a lot of setup of our mental states. This is not about their healing or their processing. This is about working on interesting problems, juicy problems. Let's take LSD in a controlled setting. Let's let them go through the peak experience as we know that in the proper set and setting. And then in hour three and four, we're going to sit. Everyone can sit and work on the problem that they brought to the session. So the architect sits, you know, by himself on a pillow or somewhere, and he's got to build a, a really top-end residential home on a certain piece of property that's kind of an odd shape. And what he describes in the pilot study is it all came at once. Huge download. Everything for the house design, every single element came pouring into his consciousness. And he just sat there in awe. And like a, a master, he jumped around. What about the foundation? What about here? And he jumped around. And it just came as a massive download. And if you watch Michael Pollan's four-part miniseries on... You, have anyone seen that yet? It's pretty much half the audience so far. In the first episode, it's all about LSD, they mention the Willis Harmon pilot study, and they show a grid, and they show boom, 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 engineers, problem, 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 and they show the grid filling up. Two-thirds of them had meaningful, uh, highly high-octane mental solutions for their problems, from a mathematical formula to a chemical thing or whatever. Two-thirds. Now, you just heard Rick talk about two-thirds of the people working on treatment-resistant trauma, finally getting relief, which is the, the science uh, nature study they published last year, which is breathtaking. Well, so why shouldn't two-thirds of a test group that experienced hugely elevated states of creative problem-solving consciousness be a major piece of news? This is 1966, and nothing's happened like this since. So Dennis McKenna uh, and I got in touch late last year he said, we're holding a conference in the UK called ESPD 55. It's the 55th anniversary of the last ethnopharmacological conference that was in 1967 before everything got shut down. And he's been holding these every five-year conferences. And he said, you can come. What do you want to talk about? And into my little noggin came, how about it's high, high time for science? And we're going to be in Britain. We'll have high tea. It's high time for science. What about bringing this back? What about bringing this fourth wave of practice, of psychedelic practice, back to life? The first wave being indigenous for thousands of years. The second wave being creative for the artists, for personal discovery. The third wave being therapeutics. And the fourth wave being for 
if you call, could call it a kind of genius, unlocking the genius within, which might be within all of us in, in certain fields. Forrest sitting over here, we, we know where his genius lies and how he unlocked it. He's wear, he wears it on his brow. So, uh, so this is what I talked about in, in the UK. And one of the things that Rick also talked about in the last hour was how do you get more of this into society? You do it by having people come out of the closet, right? So how many of you publicly come out of the closet on your psychedelic use to your colleagues, your family? It's a lot. It's two-thirds. I see 75%, 80%. It's big, right? Gay, gay marriage happened because of that. People stood up and said, we are not a tiny, invisible, ignorable, despicable minority. We are a force, and they stood up. And so we are standing up, and it's working. So I would put to you that if we started a pilot study of our own, and any of you are welcome to, to join me in this, where we send out experience reports, tens of thousands of them may come back, People come in and say, yeah, I microdose at work. How does that, how does that help you work? You're a Google engineer or you're working in pharma or you're working in something. There's a microdosing culture out there started in large part by James Fadiman. Do you know about James Fadiman? So James Fadiman was, guess what? In the pilot study with Harmon in 1965, he was, he was involved as a, as a assistant. He was helping to assist that study. So here he comes out with, well, yeah, we got to valorize this. So he publishes the book on microdosing. Paul Stamets, who was talking here yesterday, talked about the Stamets stack. Anyone doing the lion's mane, psilocybin, niacin, have four basically neuroregeneration. But there's a follow-on effect. When you get neuroregeneration, neural growth, you get massive more novelty in the power to come up with new things. So this is all possible, and this is also fundable. But can you imagine, it'll be similar to the institutions that criminalized psychedelics, in the, in, especially in the 80s, now flipping, whole government agencies and flipping this way. And you heard Rick talk about the descheduling, when scheduling would end, that the DEA would deschedule MDMA. Isn't that a breathtaking thought? Can you imagine that at a company like Google or re-conservative organizations like finance are saying, you know what? We have this drug testing policy that was basically a, a holdover from the war on drugs. And yet we need these tools. So guess who becomes the constituency? Guess who becomes the promotion? It's big companies, big finance, venture capital. These are very powerful forces. So if you think that the forces such as the Veterans Administration the conservative right and the left have been a really powerful force to push psychedelics to the therapy. Psychedelics for creativity or problem solving and leadership is a massive constituency out there. And it's under the table. You know, people are microdosing for work. They're using the two days on, one day off, and they're getting their results and they just don't talk about it. It's like a taboo. It's almost like the 80s. So what happened was... At the time that Dennis invited me to, to do this talk, and I did the talk last May, was in this beautiful manor, a state house, so-called St. Giles House in the West Country. And guess what? The peers, the, uh, in a sense, 
the one step below royalty people in the UK are now trippers. Not just Amanda Fielding with her Beckley Foundation. We stayed at her uh, incredible Beckley Park location where we got COVID. We were up in her bedroom after this trip and we tested positive for COVID. And we sort of sheepishly, we just had a long tea with her downstairs. We sheepishly crept back down and said, ah, we have COVID. And she said, didn't have any bother with it. I thought we've killed Amanda Fielding, you know, (laughs) because we didn't know. So we recovered from COVID at Beckley Park. But we had just come from another psychedelic estate, Broughton, uh, sort of Broughton Park in in, um, southern Yorkshire, where it's an amazing, it's a huge, uh, so Elizabethan manor house turned into a Georgian manor house with, like, was it three, 400 acres? 3,000 3, acres. They planted a quarter million trees. They have a, a healing center. And this is all Roger Tempest, the 32nd Earl of this place, Roger Tempest, who traces his ancestors back to the year 1032 continuously. He's a psychedelic guy, so what you what you see there is Ceremonial things happening here, and the the Catholic chapel holding mass here, connected to the estate, and it's so beautiful because you know these are influential people that look at the long future because they have a long past. So that's what's happening in the in the in the UK. So at this conference, we're surrounded by a huge web of support from the upper classes of UK society, and I kind of felt secure in basically coming out of the closet myself in that that environment, surrounded by wonderful people like Dennis McKenna, and Paul was there, and we had Andrew Weil, and it was a really beautiful, sweet group. So I told my own, and this is where I'll sort of wrap this part of it up, uh, I told my own uh, psychedelic and genius story, and you perhaps have them, or you have them in your futures. So one of the things that I started to work on when I was a little kid, I was a trippy little kid. I, according to Sasha Shulgin and uh, Rick Strassman, they, they predict that I have a high level of tryptamines just always there. I'm like, it, so anybody who's known me for years would say, well, yeah, that's, you know, you, you could take the, you know, lick, lick my sweat and you might trip, you know. <laughs> Don't go licking toads. It's just not going to work for you. Um, but anyway, I'm a trippy dude, and so one of the things at age 14, I thought, the coolest thing for a nerdy kid who can't make eye contact, because uh, I was pretty autistic, the coolest project, because I don't care about people that are just disturbing and, and, and whatever, I care about stuff, I care about mechanics, I care about all that sort of stuff, I can't understand people don't want to look at them. Uh, so I took on the nerdiest project I could find, which is how did life begin on the Earth four billion years ago with a jumble of molecules that were kind of like Tinker Toy. If you took Tinker Toy and put it in a box and shook it around, some of them might connect with others. And that's basically the problem of how life began. And so I set my intention on cracking the code of this problem when I was 14. And it's, it's on, well on its way. And one of the major waypoints was an ayahuasca experience in Peru, where after it was about 30, I'd had about 30 sessions with the medicine, the dance with Madre Ayahuasca. I'd had 30 dances with her. And I'd really learned the, the ways to move with that medicine. And I'd gradually gone down dose, way down dose, down to a 24th of a dose where it was a little drop, basically, 
And so then, if you're down at that level of dose, and that's the kind of dose that a shaman will take, you can do amazing different things. So I was down dosing and comparing the kind of endo-tripping that I would do naturally, where I can see wavy patterns if I close my eyes. And if I see those wavy patterns, this started when I was about nine, if I turn off my conscious brain, just clicked it off, then the wavy patterns would grow into worlds. They would just open up into worlds. It's like, oh my God, I've got colored cable TV. And there is no colored TV in our neighborhood, and there's no such thing as cable TV. But I just found it. So I found a knob that I could turn down, and my brain would fill with imagery of spaceships and people and landscapes, and would just go, 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 go. And I started to draw them when I was 11 or 12. I drew tens of thousands of drawings of these worlds. And then I realized this is my profession. So the origin of life was an entry point. It was like one of the most difficult but juicy worlds of chemistry of an earth four billion years ago, bubbling hot spring pools of stuff coming in from the atmosphere, acidic rainfall, asteroid impacts, a really not a pleasant place in the Hadean. The earth was not a pleasant place. And yet in such a degradative environment, life arose against all these forces. So it was literally in an ayahuasca experience in 2013 where I, I, I basically put, put all the energy systems that I could pull. I had a, a moment where I could pull all together and ask the question. And Mama Aya and I had looked eye to eye, and she took me to my own origins. So what I want to give you is a new expression today. First comes the healing, then the revealing. If we can remember that, it rhymes kind of nicely. So we looked eye to eye and she said, do you want to go back? And I said, go back where? I said, to your origins. And that was suddenly a vision came, a takeover vision, where I saw a 57 Ford or similar car well lit in the middle of the night near the Capilano Suspension Bridge in Vancouver with two lovers in it. And that was my mother and my father making me. And then suddenly I was a sperm. And when you get into these kind of metaphoric trips, I always find it a useful thing, which is if you get into the metaphor of the trip and you are totally immersed and you are watching for every sign that's coming because the universe is guiding you at every step, nothing is insignificant. So I felt my body tuck, tucking in. I thought, what do I do? And you I sort of ask the the field or the trip, what to do, and it's always got the same answer. Become it. Become it now. So I, oh, I've become a sperm. And I'm, I am the sperm contributing to my future, to contributing to the origin. So I became the sperm. Suddenly, the trip shoved me forward into the canal in toward the egg. And then suddenly I was the perspective of the egg, seeing that one sperm, and that was seeing me in creation. Very beautiful experience. And then suddenly I was in her belly. And I was in her belly and I felt her love. And then one day, uh, this is still in the same experience, I could feel, could hear a whispering going on in the maloka. This is the middle of the night, a whispering sound. And I looked around like, what? And I saw the shadow of two adults and they were whispering. And I realized that's the moment they're talking about giving me up. They were poor, they'd already given up my sister. There were no birth control in those days. They're going to give me away. 
But as a being, that where you're an embryo, you're not even a human being. You're at, the, at four months or five months, you're barely a human. You're more of you're more embryonic. You're more lizard than human. It, it our experience brought me to that moment where I could feel the love connection dropping. But what the gift was, I felt the love of my mother that I never felt in my life. But for those moments, and then the love connection dropped, and then something came online, which was an observer. It was a thing that then had to come in to protect the little delicate being that had to still be born. And that observer has been there ever since. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's an angel or it's something, but it was always there. And I was shot out into the universe as a spacecraft. And uh, when my parents, my adoptive parents, came and took me home, they described you, me as being, he's, oh, he's in his own world. We can't connect with him. I was a completely self-contained module at that point. And that could have been called today autistic, profoundly autistic. I was verbal, but I really wasn't. I was floating above my school watching the dynamics of all the kids. That's what I was doing. So that was an observer. And so, but there was a rending pain. There was a, you know, when when you don't have the touch of the mother or the smells of the mother or the milk of the mother, it's a big loss. So if you look at studies of adopted people adopted at birth, they have a whole range of, of, of additional life challenges. But back in the early 60s, there was no really understanding of that. There were lots of babies. I went to the very room that I was born in Victoria, British Columbia. I went back to the birth ward for the adoptees, walked in there, because the room still existed. This is about five years ago. And I looked in the room, and I thought, wow, was that, this is where this happened. And there was a guy. There was one guy in the room. It was an oncology ward. And I looked at him, and he looked at me. I said, hey, man, I think I was born in this room. Now, these are Canadians, so. And he said, man, I know I was born in this room, and I'm going to die in this room. And we both thought that was very appropriate as a, as a completion. So that's a little bit of my story. But what, you know, what does that do to you that makes you travel into realms? That little being, the protector, the observer that was protecting those beings, protected them by taking them on trips, taking them out on voyages, out into the stars, things like this as a little kid, and lots of kids do this. It took them on tryptamine trips. So I avoided drugs like the plague until I met Terrence, that fateful night where I filled my belly with his mushrooms, like I stuffed myself and launched into his world. This was back in 1999, 2000. And I totally avoided them because... There was this exquisite beauty of the the observer that was already taking me on these trips. So how do I merge all of that with this new powerful medicine? Well, I tried it. I dumped off the deep end at age 36. You know, pretty late in the game compared to many of you out there. But I could then observe all of the factors, all of the power coming in. It was just more of me. It was more of what I could be potentially magnified and the observer was running this movie camera constantly through every trip I did and it was comparing doing notes and building and building and building and building until the night in 2013 where Madre said this is how you were made and I felt healed because I knew how I was born and I felt mother's love I actually felt her love 
for a moment, it was true love, came out, and then I said, turned to the mantra, and I said, would you like to go back to the beginning? How about it? You know, we've had five years of dancing together. I can take you on a trip. Watch out. And she, well, sure, we'll merge. We'll do our normal thing of shuddering and merging into one, so we're not a kind of a dual thing, and we're going to launch. I said, going back to the beginning of life, and it's still a mystery. The birth of life is, is unknown, but we can go and become it. In this state, with these tools, with this energy, with this medicine, with this partnership, with this love, we can go and become it. And so I pulled the lever on my endotripping brain, which would power up previous trips and punch us through four billion years of molecular evolution. And you have to watch your brain temperature. I learned long ago that when you're doing this type of endo trip that's a highly accelerated repeat tripping of previous trips, they're connected together like a movie, doom, 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 because you're trying to go to the next part of the movie, you get hot. You can really monitor the increase. It's a lot of prefrontal activity. So we did it. We punched through the cloud. We swung over the island, over this volcanic island, which is where my colleague and I, Dave Deemer, predicted this is where the chemistry of life can begin. Just as Charles Darwin thought in 1871 when he talked about a warm little pond somewhere. And I swung into that pool. Once I was in that pool, I was in the throes of the trip. And the trip was no longer I, it was something bigger. It was time. It was four billion years in time. Because now this is before there are plants. It's before I, it's before anything. And so what happened was I started to black out. And I asked the question, what is happening? And this somehow bigger environment that I was in that I asked said, how can you be born if you, you're, you're here? You must die. So it's a metaphor in a sense for what happens to us in psychedelic trips. And I died. I blacked out. And when I came to, I wasn't a body. It wasn't a human body. I was a lipid sac full of polymers, full of sugars, carbohydrates and stuff derived from meteorites through wet-dry cycling processes, which we've been doing in, in the lab and in hot springs. I was a body of a protocell, but a protocell on the verge of doing something truly magical, of becoming alive. And my body then started to tear apart like a birth, and I let out a scream, like a silent scream, just in, in shock and amazement, and a bubble came off of this body and it was black. It was a dead part, but the part that remained was more alive. And as the tearing off occurred, I watched a piano, piano keys of molecules going crazy doing this, doing this, trying to control it, trying to control that budding, but failing and making a dead compartment, but becoming more alive. And then I realized death wrote the code of life. It didn't just write my code as a human, it wrote the code of life as life began. And it became a complete puzzle. Like I came out of that Aya experience just running this simulation over and over. What did this, what was going on? And three months later, just doing ordinary breath work and yoga, the download just started pummeling in. It was a community complex that. The only way for a little protocell to try to divide and fail and have a stillbirth and still be alive is it was surrounded by a community complex of other protocells. It couldn't be on its own. 
It could be separate. And then I realized we have a whole new model for how life began as a communal complex of simpler units, all in network, all in sharing, all doing their thing, lifting life as a unit, not competing, not red in tooth and claw in, in Darwinian selection. There were no genes to select. And this has become our proposal. It was published in 2015, the first round on the cover of Scientific American in 2017, the cover of Astrobiology Journal in 2020, covered in Nature in 2020, huge controversies around this. And it's science that is landing all over the planet. There isn't a day that goes by that there isn't now a paper about wet-dry cycling and hot springs and people doing actual experiments in hot springs and they're doing it in their labs and they're getting results, taking the origin of life question out of the deep oceans, out of the womb of the oceans and the hydrothermal vents, which have failed to deliver the chemical goods, and back into these jacuzzi settings on land. And so all of this I described in the talk in the UK as a psychedelic coming out of a scientist saying, I tell the world, I admit to the world and to my colleagues that I use these tools to come up with a major breakthrough, we think, it's, it's still a hypothesis, but it's very promising. And one of the four or five key questions in hu the human intellect, where did we begin? Where do we come from? Now, it turns out, and this is sort of the end of the story, admitting all this puts you at risk in your communities. Oh, he's a druggie. They talk about Kerry Mullis using acid to come up with PCR, which is gene sequencing. And he, he admitted he used acid after he won his Nobel Prize. I didn't have not won a Nobel Prize. I'm unlikely to. I'm the type of character that doesn't win. I might be named in a footnote somewhere. But I'm admitting this. Why? Because the next generation of scientists and engineers and even in leadership can be inspired and have permission to go this path, to walk this way to genius. And it will change the world. It will be as impactful in the world as MDMA assisted psychotherapy for the 12 million Americans suffering from PTSD. Can you imagine the, the, the tools in the hands of our leadership? First comes the healing, then the revealing. So what you can do, what you could imagine, is you could take a business leader with tremendous power in the world, tremendous resources, who is not feeling good in their body, who hasn't had the tools to do their own healing. Can you imagine when they do their healing, and then they go into a second session, which is, let's revision your company. Let's revision the culture of your company, your product line. You've got an incredibly clear, a clear pain mind now. What does this change about what you're doing as a titan of industry, or as a lead scientist, or as a brilliant young postdoc? Let's guide them. Let's provide them support and permission to do this. And we'll end up with so many more Einsteins and so many more highly productive people, more Elons. They're highly productive and highly capable in the company space, not rattled, right? not emotionally attached. You watch how Elon dances with Twitter and the media. He's a cool, chill guy. We met him a couple times last year. Pretty cool, chill guy. I, would, I put my chips on him any day. He's like the next generation. He's giving us electric cars and solar and like he's doing future for us so we need more of them and if they're healed we don't get the evil genius problem 
right, which we can see everywhere. The evil genie says, we don't need those. So I'm going to close that little section of the talk. I have no idea what time it is because Rick went a half hour over. But uh, I want to thank you for listening to this proposal. 442. 442. So uh, uh, what I'd like to do is actually segue into one other, well, 442, we're supposed to finish at 5, but we can probably buy ourselves another 20 minutes or something. Sorry? Along, oh, that's the, the, the genius of being the last speaker. Could go on forever. Because there's a second second section to this. Uh, and, you know, we might as well just, should we just continue into that or should we do some Q&A? Okay. Second, second session, which is very related to this. So why do we get evil geniuses? Why do we get someone who takes a, a gleeful joy in causing the misery of millions of other people? Well, sometimes it's called psychopathy or sociopathy. It's literally 2 to 3% of the population uh, could be diagnosed in this way where they just don't have the brain structures or the inbuilt personality for empathy. So they can go and run roughshod. You know, we know people in the world currently do. They create outsized damage so far beyond uh, what one human should be able to do. And yet, they're very good at getting into leadership positions through fear and terror, through conjuring, through great storytelling, uh, through appealing to people's natures. They're good at getting into So it's a conundrum for humanity. And in fact, it's probably the ultimate con conundrum for our species is that we elect or nominate or follow people that take us into destruction, right? Could that be considered like problem number one? It really could. Terence used to call it, uh, he had a question for it, which is, why is it that we are led by the least among us? It could be right. I mean, the, the politics job, you heard Rick talk about politics. This is a messy game. If you see House of Cards and what a freaking, it's a freak show. You know, it's, it's just incredible. And there's a certain personality that can navigate that and likes to play that game. But are they the bright personality for now? Do they have a solution for climate change? None. Zero. Virtually none of them have a solution. They have no understanding of technology and complexity and what is going on in the world. They're a big liability for us. So if we can switch them out, you know, gracefully and gently retire some of them off, reboot other ones, so that they become sort of the, not the evil Captain Kirk, but the good Captain Kirk somehow. Or maybe it's the evil Picard now. The good, I'm so old-fashioned, I don't even know this next generation uh, metaphors. But otherwise, we're going to be in a Borg. We're going to be trapped in a Borg. Because what if your evil geniuses are running finance, and they're running tech, and they're running bits of crypto, and they're running political manipulation and social media? What do we get? We get a gamed world, right? Where you're just all part of this huge surging game, and no one's actually running it. But their personalities and their, their love of the game is going to make it a gamed world in a certain direction. It may not be really good for us because the game will take us over so long that the bigger game of Gaia, who says, whack-a-mole, you know, humans generating heat, we're going to whack-a-mole some of you down, we're going to whack-a-mole your cities, we're going to burn them down, we're going to flood them out, we're going to whack-a-mole, 
And when that kind of thing starts happening, the game folks, that whole sweeping layer of distraction, will not have prepared us at all. We'll be just, just ready to go. The jalopy's just about off the cliff. The front two wheels are over it. And then the, the whack-a-mole is there, and then the, the so-called leadership has jumped off the back and is going in their bus you know, to their resort, and we're on the jalopy. So the sooner we can introduce these tools into that leadership space and, and boot them into different places, and many of them want to do this, and many of them are experienced, many of them are burners, the better. It's urgent. It's really urgent. Get different people behind the steering wheel. Now what I would suggest also is we can't forget love. Because who, who was it that said there's, there's only two kinds of trips was this Sasha or Anne Shogun? There were only two kinds of trips. One in which you come into contact with love, or others where you're kind of dodging around it, and other things show up that you have to work through to get connection, to get to love, to get to connection, to get to the thing that any little child earns, yearns for, that an embryo knows how to yearn for and reach for, and that we, we fall into lives of separation. And Ramdas at age 35, you remember him from the uh, the Ramdas film and certainly the Michael Pollan documentary, that he felt as Richard Alpert at Harvard as a upper middle class Jewish putz, that's what he described himself, flying his own plane, has his motorcycles, has his big job at Harvard, uh, but is not connected with himself, is just a show off. Right? This is. Ram Das talking about himself all those years ago, and then he takes psilocybin. And, and when you look at the Ram Das film and listen to the East Forest, that beautiful East Forest track, where East Forest, bless him, he went to Ram Das about six months before his death, got him on a good day, put the microphone in front of him, and got his last words. And they, it took him hours, but it was a particularly good day. And one of the things that Ram Das was able to get out from his wheelchair was psilocybin is my friend. Psilocybin is my friend. And this song went into the Grammy nominations. And it was an iffy thing that they would even accept this. But the explanation was that psilocybin totally eliminated the old putts. <laughs> it created the Ramdas that we that was this extraordinary human being. It helped boot the 60s. It helped link East and West. It, it did so much because he was an edge runner. He could go between, you know, Boston culture and gurus in India and hardcore psychology and down here into beautiful story. And then he was just an amazing dancer. Tim Leary, uh, he called Tim Leary the high dancer up on the tightrope, you know, challenging presidents and nations, but in fact it really was Ram Dass that was the high dancer. So psilocybin brought him to love. That's all he needed. That was the powerful transformative lever. That was it. So really, psychedelics and genius, if you think of Ram Dass as, as, as being a genius, as becoming a genius in the world, you know, be here now, and all these things that really worked, uh, it was started with love. It's an experience of total feeling you were supported, like those people in the Michael Pollan book and documentary who are facing their death, and they face it because they feel the love of what is, 
then they're no longer afraid. So I would suggest that my experience of love in the belly of my mother through those ayahuasca trips softened my system and, and did some boundary dissolution. This is another Terence expression. Dissolved my boundaries so I was soft to the world. And then another trip to me and experience blew, I would call it the alien of people are, people are scary out of my airlock, like in the movie Alien. Remember in the last movie, Alien, where it gets blown right into space and it's still holding on and everything. That happened to me on a high-dose tryptamine experience where it was blown out of the airlock and I came to, I couldn't walk for a couple of days, but when I went through the airport, I could make eye contact with the TSA in any other travel. It was totally neutral. I wasn't terrified like I'd been for most of my life until my 30s. And so these medicines, I couldn't, I couldn't accept love if I couldn't see people's eyes. Can you imagine never always looking down? You know, and Dennis McKenna was similar. He was very autistic on the autistic spectrum. His brother is always like out there doing all the stuff I'm doing now. And Dennis is looking down. You can see in the pictures of them. Dennis used those medicines to come into his body, into his love state, into his teddy bareness, and be able to make eye contact too. And there are millions of us, millions of us. And I'm just saying that in psychedelics and love, it really comes down to that. And so my first marriage failed, a marriage that was really consummated out here at Burning Man in 2003. Uh, we got married in South Lake Tahoe. We'd done MDMA. Maybe it's not a good idea. But we'd known each other, we'd been living together for three years and things like that, but we didn't know about parts, we didn't know about trauma, we didn't know about internal stuff, about big black clouds, we didn't know anything about any of that. And so we went into our marriage with this beautiful open hopefulness and vision for what it could be, but no tools. And so that marriage ended, and I found myself in a another devastating, confusing space, burnt out, doing the science, doing all those parallel things, and then put out the call for, can there still be love in my life? You know, I've learned how to look in eyes. I've learned about my own traumas. I've worked through them. I've used medicines. I've used internal family systems. I've worked with groups to boot myself into a better me and to clear out my, my world. And then in December of... Uh, of 2019, I was kind of like, I need to find someone who's like me, who's my own age. You know, I've been looking, and Catherine, who's sitting right here, came up uh, on Facebook, thank you, Mark, for your algorithms, and I clicked on Catherine. See, he's, he has done good. Have, have empathy for Mark Zuckerberg. Look what he's done, look what he created, or at least team created anyway. I remember being at Burning Man when there's a giant like button out there. Is anybody at that burn? It was cool. There was a Facebook like button. Because it was cool. It's ours, right? Now it's evil. The like button and corporations is all gone another way. But um, I clicked on this one, and she wrote back, and we met in January of 2020, just on the before COVID was starting to hit. And we became the new love. And through the machinations of isolation and, and building 
at my property, I just finished building Gandalf's house. And so Catherine moved in with dust, you know, sawdust on the floor. And Catherine's a master maker of home and hearth, uh, and many other things, including her own company on fermentation, her own book and everything. And we built, we forged something new. We forged something new so beautifully and so difficultly sometimes. We had to work through our parts over two and a half years. But we forged it well enough that we took the leap on Monday at San Francisco City Hall, and we got married. And, and because, because Catherine is a seven on the Enneagram, it's not just to get married. We have to do a hundred things. So we're also going to come to Burning Man, even though we had no tickets. But we got the tickets, and uh, we rushed out here, got here Wednesday morning. And this event here, Psychedelics and Love, the second part, was also a sort of surprise for you all to announce that we had done this, this beautiful thing, and that we were creating something called a dyad. And you, meant, you heard Rick talk about dyads? I'd like to put this out to you. There's uh, another fellow who was sitting right here two days ago, Jamie Wheel. And Jamie Wheel uh, talked about hierogamy, like the Greek H-I-E-R-O, hierogamy. So we've got polygamy, we've got monogamy, we've got all those sorts of things. But there's something else that, that he was talking about, that his relationship is, that Anne and Sasha Shulgin is, or, or was, that Alex and Alison Gray is, hierogamy. It's a love that is so profound, it's bigger than the two that are involved. A fate, a destiny, a surrounding field that is so large, synchrony that flows through it. And a little being is born inside between those two that probably can only be born in that type of commitment. It's called the dyad. And so whenever we get into a fight, or I, I go, I clock out and I become Homer Simpson and say, sounds interesting to everything she says from my filing cabinet. And I click out because I do my dissociation thing. It hurts our dyad, actually. It hurts the little baby. So then you come back and like, the dyad's being hurt by you saying, sound interesting. Because there's no connection, you know, and, and separation begins. And you melt apart and the dyad is <laughs> trying to get air. So if you think of the dyad as a baby, and of course when we have real children, they are that. They, if the parents pull away and are fighting, that baby is suffering terribly and, and can't get breath, can't get nutrition, can't get love. And so for the dyad for the aging couple, I'm, I just turned 60, she's 59, we're a late model uh, you know, couple. And you know, we're in the fall and winter of our lives but what a beautiful opportunity to build the most beautiful fall and winter. And as we get old and crumble, as we've supported our parents departing, we've been around the block. We've sat by the bedsides of, of dying family members many times. And so there's a softness, there's an empathy, and the dyad is precious. And what we hope to do is leave the dyad to you by our example. Let it have a life that goes on by our works, our stories, our love, our example, whatever we can leave behind. And, and psychedelics come in because, you know, we were so intense. I mean, we're finishing building a house. We're getting through COVID. We're struggling to do 
lots of things. We build our community there at Ancient Oaks, and we get into the stress mode of like, all we are is human doings. Human doings. You know, what, what happened to human beings? And the dyad is nowhere to be found. And so a little ketamine, boom. I mean, it, it, ketamine is just extraordinary. You know, a little cannabis. Everything just like, oh, we're here again. Oh, my God, I, I'm Gumby, you know. <laughs> You're Gumby. <laughs> and, and then what happens, it just like all comes out. Like, the thing that happened the other day, you know, it was so stupid and funny at the same time, and we laugh about it, and there's a little part that's hurting in here, can it have a word, and, and so then the dyad becomes this beautiful kindergarten circus of, of sharing, it's like, it's like, you know, going in homeroom and sharing your stuff, because the psychedelic's like, everything's fine, you know, just share it all, and it goes into the pot, and it's mixed up into the primordial soup, and and you come out and it's like, oh, it's all done. It's all processed. And I, I put it to you that in the upper Paleolithic, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 years ago, that the Iceman that they found walking over the Himalayas, remember they found the frozen body of this guy? Uh, in his poke, he had medicines. And he was a traveling medicine man, shaman of a long time ago. I put it to you that there was a profession where these guys, and women, especially women, were going from community to community and applying medicine, applying sound, applying incenses, magic, story, to resolve hurts, to make a community well again. And they would go from village to village and create uh, this, this beautiful thing. And this is deep in our culture. All human cultures had, had this role. Rick Doblin is one of those people. He's a gigantic village visitor trying to bring a medicine in a beautiful way to 10 billion villages at once. It's an old profession. And some of you in this room are probably seeking or already in this, this profession. You can see one right there, probably one right here. Um, and you carry love, you carry understanding, you carry wisdom for the beings. And you remind them what really matters. The dyad, the, the potency and value of the community, the health of the community, the way the children are looking, the way everyone seems to be, they can read that. And then at the end of the uh, healing comes the revealing, and then the village comes together to dance. And this happened tens of billions of times that built human beings out of the Paleolithic and up to Eleusis, where we had a thousand people taking probably an ergot analog in a temple for 1600 years to boot up something called civilization at Eleusis, you know, written more recently by Brian Mirarescu, the chemical evidence for this is now out. And so these are old practices that are the platform that we are sitting on, that we kind of forgot about, that we had too much alcohol. What happened after the enlightenment period? Did we murder all the witches? We murdered all the medicine keepers in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. You know, Jesus' love, which could have been, in a sense, a tryptamine experience, became the Inquisition. Can you imagine how human beings could do that? They could turn the message of someone like that, that seems simple, into the Inquisition of torture from a large hierarchical organization. Go figure. 
this is what humans are capable of, of doing. But we're capable of going back the other way as well. And I think Burning Man is a new elusis in that way. And with 109 degrees out there, you know, it's going to test you like any good sweat lodge will. You know, and then it will cool off and you'll have your Ellicidian mystery tonight and tomorrow night. But um, I think it's all coming together in just in time because Mama Gaia is, is calling Mama Aya on, this, on her smartphone and saying, when can I start whack-a-mole? And she's saying, hold off. They're doing their medicines. They're coming back to the green. And they're incredibly special. They're miracles. They're, they're the greatest creation of the biosphere after 4 billion years from little simple protocells wobbling along barely alive. Look at what life has, has robbed. It's worth saving. No, don't whack-a-mole yet. Let them heal themselves, let them discover, let them learn to manage you, learn to, learn to manage Gaia, let, let them wake up, let them grow up, you know, they'll do it, they'll do it in time, and they will make a garden world, they will make remake this planet just in time because the planet's actively dying, because the Venus Terminator is approaching, a hundred million years, James Lovelock says, we have until we flip to Venus conditions, so we are the last shot for the biosphere. We're the last. There aren't going to be motorcycle driving arachnids somehow after us. It's, it's us. We have the job to replicate the biosphere, to build new worlds, to basically learn how to run the biosphere ourselves. And when we come into it with love and empathy, we can do it. And it's a big project. We need a lot of firepower, but driven from a different route, rather than, I need to show the shareholders something, or I need to play the game of, of finance, which is totally disconnected from value for humanity. And that gradually softens and changes into other things. And I think we can roll the system. We can roll it into a new mode. And it's going to take all of us standing up and saying, we need to roll the system. Here's, my, here's how I roll myself. And our neighbors say, oh, I would like to roll myself too. And then the community rolls itself into a new platform and blam, goes and goes and goes until uh, we've rolled a city, we've rolled a nation. And this is happening from you know, New Zealand to Iceland to Canada, even to here. And so that, that would be my last word that we can do this. We can literally roll onto a new platform. And we're actually, it's underway. It just needs to be helped a little bit pushed along a little bit, and that's what the burn is for. Ecstasis, communitas, and what is it? And uh, gravitas. So with that, I probably rolled on long enough, and uh, I'd like to open it to, for some questions. I have to admit that I really did enjoy the birthday greeting from the people who were there to listen to Bruce's talk. As you know, I first went to Burning Man to celebrate my 60th birthday. And the plan was to attend again in 2022 to celebrate my 80th birthday. However, uh, COVID interfered to the extent that I didn't even have a celebration at all. But when I heard the crowd shout happy birthday, I realized that I actually did have my 80th birthday at Burning Man. Thank all of you for closing the loop for me. When I heard your birthday greeting, there was a smile on my face and a tear in my eye. 
Also, I should let you know that after my talk at the Convergence Conference on Orcas Island in 2019, I quit making personal appearances at conferences and festivals. There were two reasons for that. One, well, I was just tired of traveling and wanted to stay home. And uh, the second reason was that some friends and I decided that, well, there already were too many old white men giving psychedelic talks. So it was time for me to move aside and let some younger people take over. That said, <laughs> somehow I got talked into giving a 10-minute presentation on Sunday, February 5th in San Diego. So at least there won't be much traveling involved, and it'll be short. I'll be telling the story of my first psychedelic experience and, well, how it has influenced the rest of my entire life. And if I can stick to my guns, this will be my last public appearance, short as it's going to be. And I'll put a link to that event in the program notes for people in the San Diego area if they want to attend. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.